0: I'll hit record and I'll say, welcome to Sociocrafting the Future.
1: Rello, Rello, Rello. This time,
0: this, yeah. We need some, this stage.
1: we need some intro. We need an intro in whole yeah, life. No
0: thing music, no <laughs> listeners, but so that's all right. <laughs> we're, we're getting some kinks out, so that's fine. But, uh. I guess the thing is, if, if you ever do get listeners, they can always come back. So yeah, I see
1: where it all where it all began. I was I was, yeah. I was talking to a mate of mine, and she was saying, "Oh man, I was discussing all of our kind of ideas and concepts, and I fun like you thinking, man, you should do a podcast." I was like, well, you know what, we are so <laughs> here it is. Here's the
0: backlog. Nice. Um, yeah, Sociocraft in the Future podcast episode four, I think. Mm. And um, we were gonna. We said last time we we're gonna start off with um, just a, a random observation about black holes and mitochondria because we thought it could spark some interesting stuff. But I was, I was, re- I was reading an article, a research paper about pulsars and quasars, as it, it had been a while since I'd read about them. And it's like you know that field, I think, has been advancing quite a bit as we get more. Powerful telescopes, but how did it? Uh, there was a they were just talking about certain types of black hole. Oh, there was just one throw, well, not throw away, but there was just a random line in, in the article or the paper that said they're the most efficient things we know of at converting energy uh, matter to energy. Um, wow. And as the matter, yeah, as the matter sucked in towards a black hole during that process, like a lot of energy is released, like any, anything that crosses event horizon doesn't ever leave. It always goes towards the black hole, but uh, uh, the journey towards that for the particles along the way, as they're exposed to the extreme environment, they, a lot of energy is released. And then they said something that like certain ones, I think it's like fast rotating black holes they can convert about 40% of that matter into energy. Hick. And, um, yeah. So I just thought that was super interesting and it made me think about power sources. And then there was some theoretical physicists that had like hypothetical ways to basically make a power plant out of black holes and like harvest the energy. And uh, you know, I was just thinking about our, you know, pr- potential aspirational civilization in different ways to function in the universe, you know? Um, and then to finish the story, I, I I don't know what made me think about it, but I guess, um, when you look at a diagram, like the old school diagrams of, of of an atom and you see the different, you see the nucleus and you see the electron orbits and at least how they lay it out looks identical to a, Uh, a map of a star system with a central star and a bunch of planetary orbits. Mm. And, you know, so I just started connecting a few things and I was like, okay, well, so I was thinking, okay, so a black hole, it seems to be functioning at providing energy out into the galaxy, right? Like it's taking some matter and then it's converting some of that into energy and distributing that out into the galaxy. And it made me think of, I think, I think when you're a little kid and you hear about a black hole it's a little bit terrifying mm. it like seems like some sort of destructive evil thing but then i thought oh like that's really that's quite a. it's providing this service to the to the um galaxy that you know that it's they seem to be finding a, a, a supermassive black hole at the center of every galaxy so i was like you know Starting to look at it is like okay, it's a function. It's providing a function. It's like an organelle or the nucleus of a cell, and maybe its function is like a mitochondria, which is to provide energy to the system. And then I looked up cellular metabolism. And I was like, let me just check this. How what's the conversion rate of like cellular respiration? And it can com- converts about forty percent of its fuel source into energy for the system. I was like, well, that's pretty weird.
1: Mm, that must be like a, no, I don't want to say like a universal limit, but that's a cool observation, bro. Um, yeah. my mind, I had a, I have been thinking about, um, and talking about setting up a compost in our town and, you know, a compost is like a hub that takes resources, organic matter, and then reconverts it out into the community as soil that use can be used to enrich, um, you know the the town hall the, the local environment and i was like man uh, uh black holes are just like huge compost piles in the center of uh galaxies they're just um taking matter and just putting it back out as energy to be reused <laughs> that's what i had in my head mm, yeah the compost
0: heap slash mitochondria of
1: the galaxy <laughs> i'm just thinking that's either like a universal these universal laws or clues to universal laws that are that are just present out there the micro and macro the ultimate ends of those spectrums uh, or the um, person writing black holes I was looking at the person writing mitochondria and they're just like yeah, we're <laughs> at the same thing but that's that's a cool observation cool coincidences at the the biggest and smallest scales yeah the, these uh, this like there's some patterns between the macro and the micro scale, they're kind of emerging. And I I remember you always talking about uh, what, uh, pattern language, or what was the book you mentioned last time, like around the different patterns and, and fractals and the the larger scales and those patterns there being mirrored in the smaller scales of things.
0: Yeah, this, of we talked about scale invariance, mm. it's like a principle of I don't know, maybe a good observation, you know, like, or not good, but it seems to be that if you're observing a pattern, a universal pattern, then you should be able to find an expression of it at all scales. And then I think we also mentioned that, you know, there's this like, I don't know, ancient Western esoteric maxim or saying that as above, so below, which is basically that's Expressing scale invariance basically, that the patterns you observe on the large scale, you can observe on the small scale, and vice versa. So, if you have access to a certain scale, you can infer a lot of information about the other ones, even if you might not be able to directly observe them. Is one, I guess, takeaway. Well, there's many takeaways, I guess, but yeah, it was just interesting to see those sort of markers between a cell and a galaxy. It's just I'm thinking now it's scale invariance being a,
1: a feature of our natural world, and then it makes me think of okay what what type of civilizations what are our future civilizations civilizations going to look like and how what how will scale invariance be present there and then it made me think of well economies of scale is scale variance and when you do something in with well, the big enough scale, things cost less um, and so it makes me think, does that align with the natural with the potential natural law of scale invariance and, and then I jump to well economies of scale, present and present and materialist capitalist economies and then um in my mind, when there are economies of scale in place, something in the Environment and the ecosystem is missing out because it's um, it's not sticking to that to that law or there's there's something that you've that's been missed out or exploited to to veer or to veer on the side of scale variance. Now, just it's just interesting.
0: Yeah, that's a really good observation. It's not behaving in a similar fashion. Mm. It's behaving in like the opposite of that where. It doesn't really function that well at a micro scale i like
1: I like that oh, and I think I remember writing down scale and variance when we were talking in our earlier discussions around around what does this future society or the state of societies need to look like and I think that's probably one thing we can we should come back to because um, if a household if a community if a city if a country all operate on the same principles. What is what is the scale invariant principle set that allows all those things to function um, but are similar across all levels? Yeah, and um, be. yeah, because the things like collectivizing and, and hyper collaboration, hyper transparency seem like things that happen or can happen at a small scale, but I don't know if they are present in a big scale, so there's probably um. What 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 needs to happen so that they can, they can be present as the scale of something goes up? Because I, I can think of a community garden. I can think of, I think of when you talked about that, that place in China where this food is just free and they give it out because it's all equally operated. But I don't know if you scale that up, what does it look like? Mate, these are yarns What's the back of your um, mitochondria and black hole yeah.
0: discussion center? I'm glad you could apply it to our mission at Foundry (laughs) and that is made me think of so many things around, um, how, well, first of all, that the pattern language book, um, that I mentioned, that's really scale invariant patterns, isn't it? Because he's saying, you know, here's a pattern that could apply at your desk or a corner of your room up to a, a, a large landscape or regional scale and that you can you can learn and use these patterns to create. And I was, I was thinking like elegant systems, it's like a marker that the system is really elegant or well-designed maybe mm. that it's and that if you don't have the elegance in the design, then it's scale invariant, right? It can only function at certain scales. I think that's at least in my mind, a good way it's a good tag data. It. It's like, oh, that's an elegant design because it can function at any scale mm, effectively. Mm. And then you were mentioning these things and I'm thinking, yeah, that's true, and and maybe that's what decentralized blockchain, web three type of architecture can allow. Mm things to be efficient at a small scale, which otherwise you would need a lot of infrastructure and overhead to do. Like, oh, we can't do governance. We can't do, we can't uh, have a, we can't monitor the authenticity or share data because who can, who can manage and set up all the infrastructure for just, you know, my room or this little community garden, because it's not cost effective. But if it is cost effective through decentralized blockchain tech, well, that's, I think it's yeah. pretty easy to see how you can apply that at a big scale, like which is the network state type of concept, right? Mm. I mean even in his book and his presentations he just he shows the scale from the micro to the macro and how the network state can function. So I think yeah, that's a good point.
1: Um let's look at that's a tag, well, I suppose a tag or a principle or something, it's always keep keep a lookout for that scale and variance. Um because, yeah, you do want to achieve efficiencies that you can get at the large, at the large scale, but you don't want to have to... Uh, but there's so many barriers and capital barriers to overcome to, to do that. And, um, yeah, like if we can use technology, uh, AI efficiencies or blockchain or whatever is out there to, to allow us to achieve those efficiencies at a small scale, then it's wicked. It makes me think
0: of the social architecture component that um like applying that that same type of thinking over on that side could be really useful as far as those systems um and using the scale invariance as just a marker that you're on the right track or that um, you know what i mean that's a potential
1: we're we're uh, operating in a in a way that's not compatible with scale and variance, I think we've operated in a way that exploits takes from our environment, which may have been all right with a certain population or with the with a certain system or certain size, but as we go, you can just project that it. it's not gonna it's not gonna end well if we carry on in these ways. It's not suitable for growing population.
0: No, it's definitely it's not suitable for progressing along the Kardashev scale, mm. you know, because those scales of civilization would, in this game, a would they would need such huge reserves of material to exploit because they're so inefficient, right? Mm. What What
1: some things we can unpack? Like you just mentioned the Kardashev scale, and I I don't know if we've talked about the Kardashev scale or, um or social or social scale similar to that because yeah. when we talk about Kardashev, it's a it's a tech tech civilization type scale eh? um, and this that's yes. yeah but this um this podcast socio crafting was a word because it's about yeah crafting a social focus future um instead of a technocratic type future and what are all the things that come when you just come away from from technology being at the core. Um, so should we talk, a bit, yeah. should we talk about that or, or, or what are the, what are some other things?
0: I think it's good. It's probably a good time to return to that and to explore that and share and develop our thoughts. I mean, basically we saw that we were, I don't know, somehow the Carter scale came up. And like you said, that's just a, that's a way to measure the total, exploitation or harvest of energy of a civilization and to like delineate a civilization based on how much energy it can harness um and in some ways it's aspirational because I don't think many people think at those scales like Mm. I think that's what's cool about it to me is that it forces you to think about scales which we don't usually think about I mean when it starts to talk I mean that first, I think, one the, the stage one on Kardashev is har- is harnessing the like total energy of a planet, which is like I think most people, you get them there pretty quick. But then you talk about harvesting the totality of your stars of the the star in your in your star system, mm. you know. And you're talking about what's the name of the hypothetical uh, the, structure Dyson? I think it's a Dyson, Dyson sphere. sphere. Yeah, you know, you get to those levels and it forces you to think in really different scales which is super interesting but um as you were alluding to we were like you know back to the game a game b problem it's like without social wisdom social architecture that's founded on wisdom and and in our view on animism creating a, a scaffolding of social architecture that can guide evolution along or development along this Kardashev scale it was likely just to remain How it is now, which is, I guess, and there's one quick point on that is, you know, we can talk about all these different metrics of, and people can argue, oh, it's okay to extract. It's not okay. But I think another interesting data point is this is not enjoyable for most people right now. If you look at rates of depression, suicide, satisfaction, loneliness, like all those markers are just showing people don't enjoy existing like they are now. And I think that's a good good as good of reason as any to just say like we you know as humans why are we perpetuating this thing that none of us really enjoy participating in Mm. yeah we are the people driving it so anyways it was just a little thing that came to me around you can argue about which how you look at the at the natural world is it living is it dead is it okay to do extract the x mineral or not but you can't argue with the data that people are generally miserable in this type of society. Um, And I think it's always nice when you have a data point that's not really arguable. Mm. You can't really, no, people are happier now than they've ever been. So we said we need something to guide a shift to guide all the technology, right? That would make Kardashev one, two, three, four civilizations, enjoyable and harmonious to exist in. Is that Mm. fair to say? Yep. That's definitely that's definitely the
1: the, the challenge that we presented, uh, that we were presented with when we were looking at the Kardashev scale. That that set type one civilization harnesses all the power uh, of their uh, natural resources and c- controls everything. But then, like, uh, but then, what is the social structure in that society? Like, who then controls that infinite power? Like, infinite on that scale, is it just within the small 1%, and then there's everyone just in this dystopian world where you're just a, a number. Even though there's limitless power, there'll still be authority telling you uh, oppression, depression, all of those stati. Mm-hmm. They,
0: they're
1: they not, um, it would be remiss of us to say that they are linked together, where if you go up the Kardashev scale, you also go up the social well-being, all these other these other scales. So we were thinking, oh, what would, um, what would a social scale look like? And then, um, if you got a one, two, three, Kardashev civilization where three is, you control all the power of your, of the black hole at the center of your whole super galaxy or whatever. Uh, maybe we don't think of that. Maybe we just go between um, now and maybe one where we control all the uh, yeah, type one. So we were like, I think we were saying, well, where would we be right now? And I think you said, someone said we we're a point. Seven or something, point seven three, or um, yeah. so. What would point seven four look like, or you know, what 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 would on the um, on the social scale? How to, what does it look like to get from point seven three to point seven four to to point eight? What does that all look yeah. like? And then the other questions we were asking is, um, what does it look like from here to there? And then what does day to day life look like? what does socializing look like, what does infrastructure look like, where do you get food from, where do you play, uh, what do communities look like, and then what do they look like in different biomes, in different parts of our world, of, of coastal, uh, in all the way inland and mountains and desert, all these different in-city urban, urban environments, mm-hmm. um, what do they look like? from from now until that future state across all of these different biomes and all of these different types of activities and we had three axes and then we were thinking, oh that would be it's kind of a cube that you could form and that's kind of where our cube our um what, what do we call what do we call the cube? The vision cube. our vision cube, yeah. That's uh, the vision cube holding our yeah. All of those all those states of being. And it would be so, so cool, like, like a tesseract, to look in, look into it and be like, wow, that's the map. That's what we need to follow. There's, I can see myself here. I can see myself doing these in my own environments, and um, and it's enjoyable. I'm looking at society. I'm not looking at the advancement of technology alone, but I'm looking at my role and my place within the society that is advancing.
0: And we were saying that, you know, that, well, this is what Funaki and you and I are working on, but you know we think it's valuable for everyone to work on in their own way is is to through written and spoken word and increasingly through generative ai if you're not blessed to be uh, an incredible digital or or traditional artist right if you don't have those skills what generative ai i guess the positive side is it opens up the ability for people to translate some things they might have in their head or some visions or some imagination and to put it in a format that's more easily shareable. Um, I guess even chat GPT or large language models can even support people to express uh, imagination and visions in a written form. So we were saying, we were saying, you know, what Fonic is, what we're going to do is use these tools to explore and to show, describe, but also show visually in stills and increasingly as technology improves in, 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 videos or animated formats, Mm -hmm. what the different steps along the way could look like, um, and help flesh out through that process, what social architecture, we would imagine you would need to maintain these really beautiful and exciting components of that civilization, right? Mm -hmm. Like crafting the complementary scale that would allow progression on a Kardashev scale to occur in a really benevolent beautiful enjoyable way mm. because i mean you've got Kardashev. who well, makes me think of a few things Kardashev talking about you know harnessing right and it's like that's i guess a non-relational way well it's a, it's a mm. there is a relationship but i don't know if it's intentional but it becomes sort of a, a extraction yeah. exploitation right but what if you have an animus foundation then it's like, how do we have a relationship with these things that produce energy and have like a, an, an exchange that's mutually beneficial? Um, and that's, I think a lot richer way to conceive of
1: versus mm, an, an extraction based, yeah. based metric. Could you have a relational based metric between people and our and now and where we live in and the, the, the animus wasn't an animus foundation. That's cool. That's like um, that's a cool way of, yeah. of articulating it. Um,
0: you Like how do you, uh, so in that sense, a type one civilization on our scale has a conscious relationship with all components of the Earth, of the planet, and then a, a type <laughs> a type two has a conscious and active relationship with every part of the
1: of your the solar, solar system. system
0: and type three you have an active and conscious relationship between your civilization and all parts of the galaxy all things in the galaxy wouldn't, oh, wouldn't that be so cool to that's be a not, part of that's so cool um, <laughs> and you know compatible yeah with, much more compatible with an indigenous way of life
1: i am um, just before you go, I, I had, yeah. in our mind, we had a vision cube, which in yes. the three axes were, it was time from now until when, whenever the time is we're going to achieve that state of maybe a type one c- c- civilization. Yeah. Uh, there, so there was time, then there was the ecosystems, um, the different biomes. Oh, yeah. And then the other, the third axis was activities, like what, what, what would you be doing? But I think there's one more which takes it to the Tesseract, which is what around scale and variance. And I think that it has to be um, if we have a relationship with every everything, what does that look like at a global scale? And what does that look like at a a household scale? So those, I think that's the one other dimension. Um, Just going Mm. off the start of our conversation that we may need to capture within our vision cube or vision Tesseract, because the cube could be appropriate for a large scale, but then it might not reflect day-to-day life Mm. in a a, just a little village versus um, the infrastructure that we'll need to to talk with the rest of the solar system. Um, Yeah, yeah, I think that's also that was. I just had to say that I just had to chuck the scale of variance part into the vision cube so it was there. Um, But I love the way you've articulated a type one civilization on the social scale, um, this relational scale. That's wicked.
0: Yeah. That's such a exciting way to look at it, to imagine measuring (laughs) relational strength and connectivity between society and the other components of this larger living system on the planet, you know? Mm. And it also is really exciting because it gives you a little bit of, direction on what sort of techniques, technologies, social systems you might need to increase relational connectivity, right? Because in some senses, well, many senses, some information technology has increased that. Um, Some of the general infrastructure of the internet, some, the way we're connecting and we're going to podcast is increasing connectivity Mm -hmm. between components of this you know planetary system but it also i think can give you areas worth exploring or give us around what other things could in increase relational connectivity you know what other techniques modes of being It's fascinating
1: i think our last conversation was the animist foundation and the materialist foundation and now it's kind of getting to uh Within a materialist foundation, there are extraction-based actions, and within our animist foundation or society, they are relational-based actions. These may not be the right words, but the general gist. Um, yeah. And then, so within the materialist scale, the Kardashev is how much energy you can extract, and within the animist side, it's around how how well. Or how, what, what's the word with how relation or how well you can achieve relationship, or how strong? Because ex, yeah, extraction seems like a finite thing, eh? Like a extraction thing is fully gone. But I think feel like is you can have a, have almost a limitless,
0: infinite, an infinite
1: yeah. strength of of relation. Um, True. Well,
0: I guess you yeah you 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 would like to be able to measure the quality. In the amount of relational connections between, yeah,
1: and so then you're getting to on the relational side, it's a, it's about the quality of the relationship. On the extraction side, it's about the quantity of material yeah. extracted.
0: Um, yeah, and it's like a utilization metric. Yeah, how much of star's energy are we utilizing? Yeah, and obviously that's within that frame of utilizing is is mostly to make more gadgets and economic activity.
1: Mm.
0: So even that metric's pretty narrow, right? Because you could utilize, well, we're utilizing half of it to actually like create a cosmic beacon of, I don't know, that lets us all telepathically link up and, and expand our imaginary potential millionfold. You, you could apply it to other things, but I think in that sense, in the Kardashev scale, it's mostly applied to, quote, productive, Use, mm. aka making money off making stuff. Like the, the cool, the cool thing about
1: thinking about it in this way is, they. Usually, if you think on the animus side, you think at a village level, you think at a immediate, immediate environment in my relation, and then so. Default you don't think interplanetary travel and, and growing beyond your solar system, but I think this way, in terms of the quality of your relationship between all things on your on the planet from your local ecosystem to this global ecosystem how how strong our connections are our relational connections are they can then extend like if, then it. Brings into this narrative, it extends beyond just our planet. When you're thinking of civilization growth on the Kardashev scale, then you do, yeah. then it does encourage expansion, but not expansion for, um, like not imperialist expansion, not extraction-led expansion, but relational.
0: Um, right,
1: love that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Then you're like, because in my head, as we've been talking, I keep thinking about how diff- different, different base layers of your society affect the why that your society has mm. you know because i always like to well, why do we do any of this why, like why why do you just infinitely want to extract more energy and make more things Is not there's not a clear why given right mm. it's just like but what you said is so cool like why do we why are we expo- like why do we want to get to this next star system, next galaxy we want to connect and build a relationship with all the stuff there it's more potential connections into this growing community, family, you know, it's like, that's a, that's a really beautiful desire. I think mm. like who knows what's there to connect with and what incredible richness it could add to this connectivity and to this community. Right. Mm. So it's like, oh man, that's such a, I think a positive drive for exploration. Ah, that is like, yeah, well,
1: that, yeah. that is though, so. but it's like, it's, it's it's actually, yeah, we just, this is what it's about, it's exploring, socio, it's crafting it as we kind of explore, these are like live explorations yeah. of what, we, what we're what we thinking, what's potentially, what's possible.
0: I mean, we are figuring stuff out as we go, you know, and mm. sharing that process. It's like, oh, that's amazing. So, <laughs> yeah, we sort of just encountered this thought for the first time exploration is a really powerful thing that can unite a society or a group of people and but there's a lot of historical links to it which aren't necessarily positive mm. you know even at just a mild level it was often i think there was genuine explorers that genuinely just loved finding the unknown i think that's pretty okay there's a lot of exploitation displacement Trauma, genocide associated with it as byproducts because of what was at the base of those explorer civilizations, right? Mm. But I think there, most people recognize there is something really beautiful about this that just the raw concept of exploration removed from mm. the historical damage. And most of our different cultures have some form of exploration, you know, in their social architecture. And I think what's beautiful about what you laid out is. It's a way to have this shared aspiration of our civilization around exploration Mm. and connect it to a baseline, a base foundation, which will help influence it to be a positive process. Mm. So you can have this thing, which is a nice binding, uniting component. And you can have something that helps a wisdom a worldview that helps guide it to be non-destructive, but to actually increase novelty, increase coherence of the system you know, to have an anti-entropy effect mm. where you're actually going out, we're connecting things.
1: It makes me think about like, uh, like the growth of, a, I always love thinking about forests because we live next to forests. It's, um, the growth of a forest versus the you know expansion of a monoculture crop whereas forests grow um, and there's synergies within all the different the, the diverse species that live there and they all have the synergies and they build resilience um it's kind of it's kind of similar to that The kind of expansion and incorporation but then i was thinking of where does the forest stop? You know, when does the forest know? Actually, no, this isn't my space. This is a whole nother ecosystem. And mm. um, like this might be a, a wetland over here and it's not going to have mm. forest and then wetland. They they kind of have boundaries and they understand, you no, know, we're not going to fully subsume you into ours. We're going to let you exist. We're going to coexist. We're going to have a relational aspect, but then they do have a relationship in, in terms of maybe the water cycle that links them together or different when you take it at a at a at a macro lens. And so I'm thinking how do we how do we have relational um how do we create relationships beyond our planet, even just beyond our country, in a way mm-hmm. that um we can respect each other's ways of being and enhance each other's mm-hmm. ways ways of being, but without saying, We're all one, you know, we're all like we're all a forest. Whereas if you look in the forest it's all everything's unique and different. But then a forest can be different to to a wetland, can be different to um, you know, coastal environment. Yes, I'm just thinking those are some other thoughts of um maybe that's a scale and mm-hmm. scale and variance example as well, you know? Um there's richness and, and diversity at all scales, but they all are relational, so yeah, I'm just thinking just
0: another no, it's good. I want you to keep going on that thread. It is scale and variance, and teachers are, are forests are amazing teachers and I think areas for us to learn for, from and you know the tree as a unit is very scale invariant to the forest because they are very similar in many ways, right? Mm. These rich ecosystems that are symbiotic between a lot of different subcomponents. So they are already, even within the forest is a great example of, of sort of scaling variance. And a tree itself is a big ecosystem that has harmonious relationships between a lot of things that creates air from, or creates oxygen from carbon, creates sugar from light, you know, provides habitat, filters water, uh, filters sound, you know, does all these incredible things. Um, and then a forest is like that on a larger scale. But I love what you said. I think it... I'd love to hear you talk more about this. I think it's a great practical component to our social architecture, which is you're part of a thing. The subcomponents, the members of force are part of a thing. They function as individual sovereign things that can make their own choices and have their own lives, but they also part of a functional whole.
1: Mm.
0: That's, I think, the place to learn from for how we can craft social architecture, Right. Do you have yeah, any more thoughts
1: on them? No, I think that's These... that's articulated really well. Like I think and as you are a part of that functional whole but then there are other functional holes that you are also in, a a network of and so there's In relation to right? in relation to so just as you are a subcomponent of a larger whole, the whole that you are a part of is a subcomponent of something else. And they all Speak together and, and work together in certain ways and rely on each other in certain ways, and I think that that fractal shape there that can mm. keep being applied at larger scales. So okay. there exists a relational scale invariance potentially.
0: Um, it's a way for us to learn how to apply it at a larger scale. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. Really like we and so we can see. We could look at a tree and then we could explain it. You either get it or we could explain very quickly how these relationships and there's parts and a whole, a forest, an ecosystem, and even a planet. Well, what this gives us as a guide to is like how you can conceive of that beyond a planet, which I think is where for most of us, we haven't invested a lot of time in thinking, how do you do this beyond a planet?
1: Yeah. I'll come back to the smaller scale too, because it makes me think of we had just recently the big, the big hooey. Uh, the big hui Moti for te Māori, and it was the first time, one of the first few times, I wouldn't say the first time, but one of the few times that Te Tai who are traditionally not our king kingitanga iwi, they are Te Tiriti o Waitangi iwi, have come, to, have come down uh, to Waikato, and they had a strong presence, and they were united, wanting to let everyone know we're here, and then it was also one of the first times, well, you know, while I've been around, that us in Waikato, within our haka, we, we, we had te Tiriti o Waitangi, and we were, you know, we never haka that on our side. Um, and so my, my my example is like Te Tai Waikato, e Apanui, all of these different, they are all different rākau within a forest. And um, they're all unique in their own ways, but they all potentially can work together as, as a large forest. Um, but then, when you the other thing is, if you're trying to work with the forest, if you're something else, like I'm thinking, if you're the crown, and you think all of you are the same, well, that's, mm. that's you know, and then so or, or you you try and group that forest into so, iwi structures when they were traditionally hapu structures, you have iwi structures coming up, then um, then there's not, that's not a relational like between your whole and another whole. that's not a good relationship. Um, mm. So yeah, I'm just thinking, just as you had whānau, marai hapu, and they're all working as part of te Māori, or working towards becoming this whole unit, how you engage with another whole unit, that the other has to, you have to work symbiotically, and it has to be kind of a back and forth, like a like a type thing. But yeah, because they can be compatible, but they have to, I think one whole system has to understand the other system for them to work together. And I think if we were to develop as a species on our planet, and encounter any, and what, try to have planetary engagements with another whatever, we'd have to have a fuller understanding of that and not just impose our understanding of how we are on that. Anyway, more, that's, more, more, that's, yeah.
0: That's so interesting because I mean, there's a lot of wisdom in what you said, but that made me think of that. You know, they're coming in as this large, beyond a nation, right? Like a global mm -hmm. uh, empire. And then there's systems here of of social order that, you know, they may not, you know, oh, Marai in there as well. And they didn't really meet them on those layers.
1: Yeah. And I'm just keen to hear your thoughts Around, Mm. do you think that's an incompatible like incompatibility of scale, or is that maybe an incompatibility of the foundational stack? Maybe that's that, eh? Maybe if you're a forest based on an animal stack, and then there's another forest based on a materialist stack, how do you have a relationship, and then how do you also navigate the? The quality. How do you achieve a quality relationship between those two worlds? Mm. Do you have a treaty? (laughs) No, you don't. But yeah, I think that's a challenge too. Is when um, when you are interfaced with like a forest and a city,
0: Mm. what happens? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean that is a very practical question, and that's what a lot of People have been struggling with, right? I think ultimately, in my mind, I can't conceive of a healthy long term outcome. It's more like, how can we survive this encounter long enough to like try to Mm. enlighten this materialist thing up so it doesn't like destroy us, or how do we leave? Or at least in my limp, I feel like maybe there's some way to conceive of it. But I can't think of a Long-term way to have a relation a healthy relationship between an animus stack founded society and a materialist, because as we've said so many times, like there's a lot of things which there's a why for an animus stack. There's just no why for a materialist. So mm-hmm. you're like, hey, don't do this. They're like, why? And you're like, well, because. And they're like, well, that in our system, that's not a because. Mm-hmm. It's not a thing is not another entity it doesn't have experience so why does it matter what i do to it mm. and it's like i don't i can't it would be a supremely elegant system that could engineer a, a harmonious thing between those two yeah it's beyond my capability you know yeah
1: and i think in my mind may not be but in my mind i visualize an animus stacked society as a as a forest um uh, and all the synergies, and I and I imagine a materialist stack as like a as a high tech city, in the middle. I'm like, how would they meet? And then I think, solar punk imagery is probably trying to merge those two, and that's mm. that is that is the challenge. That's the aspirational challenge to try and merge those two, because there will always be the game A. Sorry, the game A. And the game B. The interface and the transition and maybe solarpunk punk societies are transitional societies that may sit somewhere mm-hmm. along our on our social scale of civil advancement of civilization um and that's maybe all we can we can conceive at the moment is, is, yeah. is that, because is that'cause that's our wildest, but that isn't really um that's maybe not if there's maybe not true. Relationship between all things, but a compromise at, at the interface.
0: This like a halfway. Yeah, it's like it's like a it's like
1: a, tra- point. It's like a transitional point, which because um, I think. Yeah. So go ahead. Mike. No, no, that,
0: that's all. That's all. I think when you go deep, deep into it, and we touched on this a little bit around, from an animus view, how much difference is there between? The technological infrastructure that humans create and the nest of a bird, a tree, a river, right? Like it's a, from my understanding of philosophy and history, the division between quote natural and quote unnatural is, is a very monotheistic Abrahamic Mm. distinction. And I don't think that's inherently present in an animistic outlook, right? Like there's not. And so then to me, it becomes around the quality. It becomes around the attributes of the thing, not a predetermined artificial category. Oh, humans created it. That's garbage. Oh, nature created it. That's good. You know, I've been, I think it becomes more about, is this a beautiful system? Does this um, enrich the, the, the cosmos? Does this provide, not provide, it's about the attributes of the thing that you can, examine rather than a, than a category. It's like, is this a beautiful, elegant system? Does this share? Does this propagate anti-entropy? Does it increase connectivity? You know, and, and that's how we look at a thing. And so you can look at a technology or a way, a type of land cover and you could apply those same things. And then you're judging it based on these attributes rather than... Mm. It belongs to x category or group therefore it has x just immutable attributes but yeah that's what i was thinking about when when you were yeah. talking about the soul monk. you know it's like rather than judge it does it come from this or that it's like what are that characteristics or attributes that it brings to this the world
1: that's pretty cool right? <laughs> the attributes and what it brings because when you get to that um natural or unnatural or or things that are created from natural world or human world, human and non-human, then you introduce a scale and then you're introducing mm. like, a, um, like, you know, straight, straight away of our Aboriginal whanau who weren't even on the human scale until the nineties yeah. or something or, or
0: um, the, the, because you create a division. Yeah. It's anti-relational, right? It's instant division. Mm. Natural world, human world. It's, well, why are we? Why are we different? Mm, Aren't we from the same world? And it's sort of like a kind of yeah, you create like a
1: vertical hierarchy or spectrum, mm-hmm. where like a a horizontal spectrum where we're all at the same level and we all have uniqueness and connect at different points. And that's where <laughs> I think. The Vision Cube is a really useful tool that we've thought about because if you just had all of this richness in a, in a, even almost a physical form or in a digital form where you could look at and you could just present that and people could just interact with it and say, oh, well, we're here. Um, what does going Thank from you. here to there look like? And in, in my unique um, – where I live and the type of place I live and, uh, and the type of – uh, scale I want to look at if I'm just at a, a home residential focus or what would a city or country look like, um, that would be such a great tool to communicate. And I think that's where we saw the value of, of um, using generative AI and p- developing a vision cube as a storytelling um,
0: mm.
1: mechanism, as a communication tool, something to take this big concept and put it into just digestible images
0: that people can um, fill the blanks in with their mind. And I think even a navigation, it becomes a navigational device, right? Yes. For people, they can use it to navigate towards things that they like in it or mm. to orient themselves.
1: Yeah. I, I like, um, you talked about the, uh, I, just, I just had to quickly Google it, the long now, which is that 10,000 year clock. And I think it was like Jeff Bezos say, put put it in there, or someone put it in there. Uh, to be like, you know, we want to think along these long time frames. That's not really a navigational tool. That's not really um where are we going. That's how long is it gonna to take to get somewhere, wherever that is, yeah. is irrelevant. But I think a vision cube could um could be appropriate. And you could have you might have multiple for different scales in you know, but, but if we had that's phase two. But if we add one as a as a yeah, as a navigational tool or something to inspire people and in, to provide clarity of the journey and not just say yeah. it's gonna take a long time to get somewhere. Oh, that, that's not But yeah. <laughs> yeah. well, where are we going? Yeah. And why have we decided to go
0: there? Yeah, and
1: um and mapping it out so that we can clearly see together is this where we want to go? Like this is one way to, to get to a final mm-hmm. destination we all want to go on, or is it not? Do we want to go on something different? Um, and I remember just lastly, we talked about what was, the, if we were to project a vision cube for the current state um, based on how we're going now, what would that look like? As a contrast, um, the antithesis of the, of the vision cube, like the, yeah. the matrix, the cyberpunk 2077,
0: yeah. the, the all of those things. Yeah. Materialistic game, a, and uh, what's the opposite of solar punk, cyberpunk. Yeah. So that's the anti, the anti cube, anti-tesseract is, yeah. Materialist. Game, a, game, a so, cyberpunk. Well, wow, that's like, so cool. I love this,
1: this kind of, um,
0: <laughs> yeah, but what you're saying is those two things, if it was a physical device, And digital, but physical, there's something cool about it that you could take, you could share. I think, well, I know because we've just, just through 2D images already, we've seen tremendous reaction, interest, and development of different people's own internal understanding of what we're talking about here. And this, so this device would be incredible for allowing everyone, no matter how much time you had to invest in it, to have your own thoughts, form your own thoughts, have an ability to see this thing and make decisions. If you want to align with that and say, yes, I'd like to, it allows people to, I think, quickly get a sense of what it is, quickly get a sense of where this thing is going and be able to make a decision, um, an informed decision. If they would like to be a part of that, if they like to put their support behind it. A vision cube where you could get, pull apart and look at
1: each part of that cube and be like, this is cool. This is what I like here. I'd like to see myself in this, Oh, this would be better. And then um, yeah. being able to use that as a sense making tool to figure out, do we, is this something that that's cool? Now nah, let's work it.
0: What a cool, what a cool session. It's the building blocks for people to be able to interact with what we're talking about and to be a part in an appropriate scale to them of contributing to the direction of a new civilization, right? Like it, Everyone is going to have a different amount of interest, ability, capacity. And what I think what we've talked about the Vision Cube doing is often what traditional governments, philanthropics, non for profits do now is they sort of just come to people and they're like, what do you guys want for this? What do you guys want for this? And they might bring rudimentary building blocks for them to play for, play with. That's a best case scenario. But I think what we're talking about with the Vision Cube, the te- Vision Tesseract, is it's a much more... Rich uh, container of building blocks mm. for them to go. I like this. I like this. I don't like this. This is cool. You know, and it's a way I think that empowers people, right? To contribute without having to, like you and me, start, try and start a whole, you know, <laughs> <Stop>. legal entity <laughs> and get right. Like, not everyone's going to do that. And it gives, it'll, it makes it more equitable, right? Yeah, for people to contribute to a collective vision, and it
1: and it minimizes the barrier to entry into this discussion because you can just see it immediately, touch it, and, and interact with it.
0: You got time for one more thing? Yeah, no, no,
1: no. That's out? all good. That's cool. I'm just, oh, I'm just so happy with this exploration discussion that we've kind of had a lot of these thoughts, but seeing the 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 duality, the dichotomy maybe
0: mm. of
1: um, the animus materialist, the gaming, the game B, the cyberpunk, the solar punk, the future, the, the extraction and the relational scale. And, and them just being on two different trajectories and two different cubes that people can just grab and see and be like, well, wow, I want to input it this way. I see this. and I see myself in this type of future. And this is something worth getting up for to create that. Let's look at,
0: yeah, I love that last piece. And I think there's a lot for us to reflect on. I think the realization around, you know, you were like, how do we measure this other thing though? And then just like, well, can we measure the quality and the, the amount of relationships and to conceive of that as a motivation for exploration to increase and grow this beautiful network of connectivity And to add more richness to all the subcomponents, all the learnings and the wisdom of scale and variance and learning from elegant systems, Mm. forests and trees, like so much dense (laughs) wisdom, but also I think practical ways to conceive of how how do we organize this? What is the social um, motivation for the civilization? How do we measure progress or conceive of progress? And we've already, there's some tangible things there. Um, and this leads me onto the other thing that I wanted to discuss, which was um, I, well, we've mentioned this video, this trilogue that um, Daniel Schmachtenberger had with get their names, John Verbeck and um, Ian McGilchrist, <clears throat> and one of the, and <clears throat> they're talking about. There is th- there is a sacred dimension to existence, um, without without making it religious or not. But there was something that transcends. There is a transcendent component to existence, and that thing in and of itself, um, and a relationship with that sacred provides tremendous meaning to people. And in and it of itself, is a reason just to explore, mm. to just explore this infin- infinite infinite. Uh, transcendent sacred realm that has a relationship with a sort of more physical world and that itself was like <clears throat> basically an infinite reservoir of why to fuel a very meaningful life and society <clears throat> I don't know I just thought it was interesting to, to to pose that to you the role of the sacred in this animus solar punk game B civilization the role of the sacred in social architecture
1: yeah, that's a that's a tricky one.
0: There is, um,
1: but it is present, like in our local animus node here in Te Ao Māori There is, um, there is the the terrestrial knowledge and the things that are here, and there's the oh, extraterrestrial, but what's the word? Um, the Māori word is the kōwai runga and the kōwai things that are of of here, and then things that are of the realm above, and um.
0: Cosmic realm.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all the physical and the metaphysical, and having a strong, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah like I like how you articulated. You have an, an infinite source of why you know and, and drive to to do things. To um, to gain inspiration from and to gain strength from, and I think if those sources are linked to our taia or to our ecosystems as well then that, that is a symbiotic relation. I, I like the idea that your um, the physical here is a representation also of the metaphysical, because if you put something spiritual and metaphysical somewhere else that's not here that I can't physically see or, or engage with or, or practice or, or immerse myself in, um, then it removes your relationship with our planet. In our environment. But if it's embedded within, if the spirituality exists within the environment and within our ecosystems, then a relational um, way of being can exist. And I think that's within within Te Ao Māori at least, and it's drawing from that animus perspective, the div, uh, the divinity of our environment. But yeah, now that's kind mm. of, that's my two cents. <laughs>
0: Because in an animist outlook, there's whatever the problem is. Obviously, we know the words are very they're loaded with baggage. Yep. But if we try to view them without historical baggage, if we just try to use the word sacred or neo neo <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, the outlook. True, in the neo in a neo animist worldview, you know the sacred is um, present in everything, mm. like the animating force. This transcendent component it's not separate it's it might there might be vast other yep. realms that we have no idea of, but it's also equally present here, here is equally present everywhere yep. that we have
1: and so, and it's it may not be fully here with us but it is represented it is manifested yeah. here um you know, in a way that's appropriate to this man i like um this is a side note, but also relative as every, related as everything is. But I remember looking at the oatmeal. You know the oatmeal. Is this is an old kind of. Um, oh, it was like this old blog, little funny things. And they did one about the um, mantis shrimp, and so the, the mantis shrimp like this ruthless creature in the sea, and it likes, it's like can crush its hand and create like mini explosions. It seems the stuff it's wicked, but it's um wow. the I think they talked about its eyesight and its vision. And dogs have two like cones of sight, so they see black and white, and we have three, I think, and it's got like seven or something. And um, so it talked about when it when we see a rainbow, we see all the colors, you know, the spectrum of light that we can observe. And it said, and it was writing in it that said, when a mantis shrimp sees a rainbow, it must just look like an explosion of like infrared UV, every everything. Um, so. You know, we, we can see and experience what we can what within our sensory cap- capacity to experience. Um, and what else we can't see or what else we can't observe may be there, but we just put maybe may not be able to manage to shrimp yeah. and pick it up. And there's probably a lot of things that we have um you know, that we are limited to observe. But maybe that's all we need and that's all we need to understand and everything else beyond requires something else. Um maybe we sense that with our, with our belief or with our faith in something or within, or within something spiritual. Maybe that's what that is. Maybe our, our lack of physical sensory capacity
0: yeah. to
1: articulate it
0: is put somewhere else. Um, yeah. yeah. That's definitely the wise position to take is that there's very likely way more, well, you've articulated like, in a scientific way how we know for a fact there's many channels of information which we are not with human sense organs are not observing and who knows how many more channels of information exist that even scientifically we can't measure yet so the wise approach yeah is as you've outlined to assume there's vastly more happening than we're aware of mm. and the reason they bring up sacred the sacred and stuff i think they're talking about the meta crisis and the emotional drivers there's some really cool stuff about left and right hemisphere that i won't go into now but they're talking about the epidemic of loneliness and how the uh, for many people don't have any relationship to the sacred or divine in their lives and that conversely when you do have an an actual day-to-day connection or relationship with that that it can provide a lot of meaning to someone's life but it makes me think your know, game B talks about this a lot, a lot of, I think wise traditions talk about you have to work with, with things as wholes um, to get the most accurate sense of them. And if these other components of existence, sacred transcendent, whatever labels we want to put, if they are part of this whole, then if our architecture doesn't deal with them. You know, I think we'll always have this huge blind spot and at the very least acknowledging them, even for now, even if that's the most we can do. I think like that's just a, a wise approach for mm. us in laying out a proposed social architecture, right? And I guess, yeah, to deny that those things have always been a part of the human experience and that there's much we mm. see or measure... That's the best starting point, right? I guess.
1: That's, the, that's the the known unknowns for us. Yeah. And then the unknown unknowns are there. <laughs> we know they're there. And um, yeah, we wouldn't be doing it. We'll be doing a disservice if we didn't acknowledge that part within our, within our whole society. It can't just be without that because we would be then migrating to a materialist, everything that's that I can touch.
0: Yeah, 100%.
1: That's gonna be tricky too like tr- tricky to capture and articulate uh and um that'll it's be so all loaded yeah and that's probably a part of yeah the big our big uh exploration and discussions when we when we engage with other people as and as our mm. as our um it all here and ideas expand and we bring other people into flesh things out that's i think that'll be a really critical part that we need to collaborate on. Yeah, uh, crowd, 100%. you know, collectively crowdsource, what they call
0: when you, yeah, open source that one. Yeah. Crowdsource, Yeah. Mm. Well, it made me think that, you know, Animus is a distributed system of divinity, right? Mm. Because it's distributed amongst all things, very much like some of these distributed blockchain web three mm. system in that sense. And I think there's general principles when you talk about this very loaded area. Um, of sacred divine religion is it always gets dangerous. And there's a bit like a cult when it has to be mediated by an official, you get into risky territories, but in an animus sense, it's the, 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 the living consciousness, the life force is present in all things. So anyone can have a relational Experience with that. They don't need a mediating expert to tell them what it's thinking, mm. right? Anywhere they go in everything and every object and every place, there's a level of that other thing, that that sacred thing, and they can have a direct experience of it. And so that's why I think Anisman has a lot of inbuilt safety protocols. Right? Mm. Humans are very clever. We can abuse anything, and I'm sure we will. But I think yep. we talked about things that, at least you, when you return back to the core of it, it's a very healthy core, I think, and it will help provide stability on fleshing out that component of this social architecture. Yeah, um,
1: yeah, definitely. I was
0: gonna go and add some more,
1: but um, but we'll save on next time.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's it's just uh, it's just it's good to put it on the radar, yeah. and like you said, that might be something that's yeah we address later, but it's part we're only trying to work in holes, right? We're not trying to exclude something and be like, oh, that does, that's for something else. Everything is for everything, mm. you know, but
1: the whole, the whole experience.
0: hundred percent.
1: Well, that's us. I think that wraps up, does it wrap up social craft in the future episode five? Is episode 5
0: not too sure. I wanted to say the same thing, but then I was like, is it four or five? Um, Let me see. I think it's four. Feels like we've done so many. It's like we've done one. We got to step (laughs) up. But that's good. This is the second week in a row. Second week in in a row. (laughs) Consistency is key. Episode four.
1: The outro credits. The outro song.